If you're trying to figure out how to navigate the tricky tightrope of parenting while you have questions, doubts, and wonderings about your spiritual journey, our podcast is for you. It doesn't matter if your kids are smalls, middles, or bigs. We'll explore what and how we're deconstructing from churchianity, harmful belief systems, and diving deep into the ways we can work this out in parenthood. We're also going to work through ideas for reconstructing a space for our families to thrive under new systems of love and freedom. We can't wait to bring you some hope that you're not alone and that it's really okay, even good, to explore all the possibilities that may have felt closed off in the past. Our podcast is going to offer you grace and space to be exactly where you are and who you are. We're really glad you're here and we're excited for today's episode. Listen in. Admitting we could be wrong about the things we are most convinced of that are so fundamental to who we are is painful and becoming someone new is scary. That's an excerpt from God Breathed, Zach Hunt. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Deconstructing Mamas podcast. Today we're talking with Zach Hunt. He's an author, father, and has spent 20 years preaching and working in various forms of ministry. He also holds a graduate degree in theology and Christian history. So double whammy there, Zach. But we're really excited to chat with you. So thanks for coming on. Thank you guys for having me. I'm excited to to talk. Before we get into like all of the stuff we want to get into, can you tell us a little bit about what your day looks like? your family looks like, and then outside of all of those things, what makes your heart come alive? Which I think I might know the answer to this question, but I'm interested to hear what you said. Well, I my day has changed dramatically in the last couple of weeks. We went from enjoying the summer to competitive gymnastics on Thursdays to cross countries on Tuesdays and Wednesdays and Saturdays, and just now to Spanish club on Mondays. So now we are Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Saturday, and, and a dog trainer who's coming on Thursday uh, on the day that the kids are out of school. So my day is trying to find hours to still have a day. I am sort of in the middle of refiguring out life and scheduling at the moment, and mostly good. You know, you know, I just I have a bad habit of taking on home improvement projects that are probably you know way over my pay grade. But I think, oh man, I saw a video on that, so I, I can refinish you know Adirondack chairs. Oh, man after my own heart. Yep. It's so I, I'm never going to do that again. Um, <laughs> I still have two more downstairs and I decided, you know, for my own mental well-being, we're going to just, I don't need these done right now. So we're going to take these one at a time and it's going to, it's going to, it's going to, it's going to happen eventually. So yeah. No, my- looked good though. I, I was impressed by, I saw the picture and I was impressed oh. by the turnaround. They looked great. Me too. Thank you. Photoshop does wonders, you know, for <laughs> internet pictures. Um, no, I mean, I'm happy with with the way they they turned out, you know, I was a moron and, and left them out, you know, and uh, I'm too much of a cheapskate to just toss them and replace them. But yeah, they, they've turned out okay. I mean, they're usable. You know, I would definitely wouldn't try to sell them to anyone. <laughs> uh, but yeah, now my day is family taxi driver in the morning and then try to type out a few words here and there if I can during the day, make sure my dogs aren't eating everything like a couch that we literally just got rid of today because they took a giant chunk out of it and then another and then another. And (laughs) yeah, so right now my life's a a little bit crazy. So um, I I do look for things that try to spark my joy and passions. And I mean, barbecue is one of those. That's another thing where I just get in way over my head. I handle the classic stuff pretty well. You know, I've been fortunate to to work with some nonprofits and, and, you know, I really like making food for people. But then I found this guy, his name's Francis Malman, and he is an Argentine chef. And he literally has this like private island that's basically like a grilling cult where he has these people in Patagonia and they just make the fires for him. And he has this famous book and like the context, I mean, all you need to know about the book is it has a recipe for an entire cow that he puts out Asador, which is like spread out on this. And I'm like, I should try that, which I should not. I mean, I can't even make his potato recipes. Yeah, my, my life's a little crazy at the moment, but you know, I, I find a lot of joy in cooking and traveling or getting ready to take the kids to search for Santa Claus in Finland uh over Christmas. So we're we're pretty oh, cool. Yeah, it's it should be really cool. We're we're really, really excited about that. That's awesome. I really love hearing about I knew about the barbecue thing. I love hearing about people's like the passions that they do outside of like 
the nerdy things that you know what I mean they do especially in this space like all of us like nerdy theological people right like what are the things that you do outside of it and I just I think it's cool you're just sort of like a regular guy who thinks he can do a bunch of things that he can't do which sounds exactly like me I'm hanging new lighting fixtures I'm like I'm doing all sorts of things that I have no business doing zero business doing but I'm doing it anyway I can't stress like how bad I am at most of (laughs) so one of the things they gave us to do with the dogs is like I have we have have a mini sheepadoodle and mini burnadoodle and the sheepadoodle is just like crazy like just has more energy than like any living being should have and so like they're like they're all about mitigating stress and and like one of their big stressors is the front door because we have glass panes so they're like you should put these like frosted like film on there and it's worked like great but like I got two out of like eight because I went insane trying to get like any more. It's like if you ever put the screen protector on a phone and you know how you have to like uh, not get a bubble or a bubble. Like yeah, I work I worked at the library at Yale one summer and it was a research library and it was basically a clean room environment and I still got dust under the screen. Like I I'm just really bad at that stuff and I keep doing it anyway because. But you're trying and you're that's trying. what matters. <laughs> is a generous word yes right <laughs> well zach like i have another quirky question for you yeah. everywhere even your email says zach with two a's right why so i was in a duel one time old-fashioned alexander hamilton tile thing and you know i lost and so i had to change my name uh legally on the internet it was some jerk had my name is basically all it comes down to is when i started so, yeah like I thought, oh, nobody's <laughs> going to have my regular sounding name. And then I was like, oh, people have like quirky twist on theirs. And here's a quirky, lazy twist. And then it just spiraled out of control. And so, you know, I figure people misspell Zach incorrectly all the time anyway, uh, with, with an H. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, why don't I give them one more thing? Well, it's crazy because my name is Esther Getz. And you would think like, could another Esther Getz have a website? Yeah. No, but they do. They are a real estate agent in Arizona, and they have a website. And last week, I got a phone call from Arizona. Are you Esther Getz? And I'm like, yes. And they're like, are you selling the house on such and such a street? And I'm like, oh my gosh, you went to my website and found my phone number on my website instead of going to so, yes. So mine was a personal trainer in Spokane, Washington, mm. who owned ZachHunt.com. And he spelled his name with an H, which just infuriated me more. <laughs> and then he gave up the website at some point because it became available. And they tried to sell it to me for like $5,000. Oh, yeah. And I was like, no. <laughs> and, but it's come down to like $1,500. So I figure if like, I keep writing really badly, that the name will you know, eventually come down enough that I can afford my own name. We'll see. I'm really rooting for you. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh, that's great. So if you had to describe, we're going to get into the nitty gritty here. If you had to describe your faith background in one word or phrase, what would it be and why? And then let's bounce you forward after you answer that question. What one word or phrase would you describe where you are now and why? Very wrong about a lot of things and still figuring out what all of those things were. Mm, that's good. Yeah. I was wondering if you were going to say, and now very right about a lot of <laughs> I am. My books are perfect <laughs> and full of answers that are indisputable. No, I, you know, it's my shtick, you know, when I get mm. book talks is that my entire writing career is just me writing about how wrong I was growing up. I mean, my first book Unraptured was about how wrong I was about the rapture and God reads about how wrong I was about the Bible. So if that doesn't give you encouragement to read more about what I have to say, then I, I don't know. I mean, that's really the starting point, right? Like for all of us, we were like, yeah. we don't feel like this was right. We don't feel like we were right about this, right? And so humbling ourselves, I think, is where it really, really begins. And that's where you really start to be able to see a different Absolutely. point. I mean, right? you know, you never hear pastors swear in church, but you also never hear them admit that they're wrong or that they don't know, particularly as a youth pastor. I felt particularly compelled to provide answers, you know, um, which I think is totally natural. You know, people ask you questions, you right. you want to answer them. People that you care for, you know, you care about them personally, you want to help them in any way. Yeah, I think the more fundamental problem is just the basis of evangelicalism. I mean, it's in Protestantism, you know, writ large, but evangelicalism in particular is I'm saved by right ideas. You know, I mean, that's what sola fide is, you know, I'm saved by faith alone. And, mm-hmm. you know, that may have meant, you know, faithfulness at one time, but 
it's become reduced to, I believe this list of right ideas and that list of right ideas is what's going to get me out of hell. If your entire Mm -hmm. eternity depends on being right, then being wrong is, is not just taboo. It's literally damnable. Damnable, right. I heard somebody say the other day, a friend of mine said, there's a difference between the faith and faith. And it was Mm. so interesting where the faith is like dogma and doctrine. And, you know, maybe faith is much more like leaning into the, I don't know, or the mystery. Mm. And so what was faith or what we would say, you know, would be mystery and wonder and has turned into dogma and doctrine. And like you said, being right all the time. I was the queen of being right. So I'm with you. (laughs) All that pressure. And I I love even just the thing that you said before about your book, God Breathed, which is one of my favorites. It's been sitting on my shelf and I've kind of gone back to it a whole bunch of times. What is your, you said it was, you were wrong about the Bible. What did you find that you were wrong about the Bible? And why did you choose the name God Breathed? The most pivotal, that's not a word, pivotal (laughs) moment. I'm a professional writer. I have I like that pivotable. <laughs> pivotable. We're leaving that in. No, I just, I, all words are made up, so I just made up a new one. The most True. pivotal moment, you know, for me was in college. This is shameless self-promotion. This is a story that I, you know, talk about in Unraptured. But, you know, I got really into end times theology as a high schooler, like, like crazy. Like, I love Jack Van Impey. He uh, passed away a couple of years ago, but he was the, he had this wonderful pompadour and he had this like fake news station um, on TBN for a while. And his wife would read all these prophecies and, uh, or news stories, and he would turn them into prophecies. And so, you know, I'm coming from this Nazarene holiness background where, you know, we're called to be Christians, but as Wesleyans or, you know, as Nazarenes, we're called to be perfect, holy, sanctified people. And so for me, it was oddly enough, the, the end time stuff became an extension of my Christian perfection because it was this like unknowable knowledge. It was this blank space in my faith that I could fulfill and be more perfect. And so, you know, I got really into it. And I, I mean, I, I have this distinct memory of playing basketball with some friends after school. And uh, I was like, guys, you know, I, I was watching Jack last night on TV and I'll be surprised, you know, if we're still here by this weekend. And fortunately they, they're still friends with me, but you know, I had my, my maps for the end times, you know, I was convinced that I was right. And I was convinced that I was right because it was biblical. It was, it was clear. The Bible was so clear to me, you know, the book of revelation was this just obvious roadmap. And so my freshman year in college, I had a, a great New Testament professor and we sat down for a scheduling meeting for the next semester, but like I took it as an opportunity for me to impress him with my theological insights. And so I sat down in his office one day and talked for 20 minutes without taking a breath and told him, you know, who the Antichrist was and had all my, you know, maps and timelines and stuff. And he sat there and listened patiently and he said, you know, I have respect for folks like Jack Van Impey. You know, they they clearly, you know, love the Bible and they're right. You know, we we are living in the end times. He said, but we have been ever since Jesus walked out of the tomb. He said, you know, my problem is that they're trying to pinpoint places on a map that simply doesn't exist. And I was so pissed. I mean, I remember walking back to my dorm and slamming the door and just, I mean, it was an existential crisis, you know, because I was a Bible quizzer. You know, I was a Sunday school nerd. I literally skipped all my AP classes and CLEP classes so that I could start college as a religion major. You know, I got all my genetic classes. My first class in college was 7.30 in the morning with Dr. Dan Spross. It was biblical exegesis and it was the worst. But like, I wanted to do that because I thought this was, you know, AP Sunday school. And so to have that, I should come up with a better metaphor, but to have the rug just completely ripped out of, you know, out from underneath me. It was like a punch to the gut. And then mm-hmm. I remember, and this is a story in God Breathe, sitting in my Old Testament class later. So if he's the you know, New Testament punch the gut, the one-two punch was my Old Testament professor who looked at our class, held up a Bible, turned around, slammed it against the wall and said, stop worshiping this book. Mm-hmm. And I mean, you could hear a pin drop, you know, because mm-hmm. we all thought that God was going to sap him um, with a bolt of lightning and the rest of us too. And mm-hmm. it was these guys, you know, and women as well that I thought all agreed with me because I thought the Bible was clear and easy and indisputable. And, and just write in this one mm. particular way. And to have these people that I thought would agree with me say, actually, it's a much bigger story and it's much more diverse. And there's a lot of difference of opinion, just totally rocked my world for a long time. And it took me a long time to get back to 
even wanting to go to church, you know, let alone ministry. But, you know, that journey started with getting to a place that, that I had never allowed myself to go to because I thought it was akin to sin. And that was a place of humility of being able to say, I don't know, Mm. and I don't have all the answers and that's okay. Mm. Yeah. So good. When people ask me about the Bible now, about the whole, well, you know, that verse in First Timothy, the scripture is God breathed. I do come back thanks to your help and, you know, other people that I've read and say, well, actually, if you go by the Bible, the very first thing that talks about God breathed is us as people. Exactly. And we don't consider ourselves infallible and inerrant. I did a lot of reading like pro inerrancy books and got a little dizzy from all the circular reasoning. Yeah. You know, I was coming from the exact same place. Biblical exegesis taught me to look at context and taught me that you can't just, even though we've chopped the Bible up into chapter and verse, and, you know, we've got our ammunition locked and loaded, you know, that's just not how the Bible works. And so the trick with that passage in Second Timothy is that, you know, Paul talks about the Bible being God-breathed in this sort of offhand way. And theonoustos, that Greek word, doesn't appear anywhere else in the New Testament. So we're sort of left to assume that Paul and Timothy knew what this meant and that he didn't have to explain it because he doesn't, but we don't. And so you have to go look at the context. And like you said, there's no immediate context, but there is broader context. And the only other thing in the Bible that's God-breathed is, is you and me. And so for me, I look at that and say, well, Maybe that's not actually saying what we thought it, or what I was taught it was to say that the divine inspiration means perfection because divine inspiration is the filling of the spirit. And that's what's going on when dust is turned into people. And those people were never perfect. The sin in the Garden of Eden is trying to become like God. And if God is perfect, then the people were not perfect. We never were. And, and so it, it opens up this whole, sometimes scary, but exciting possibilities, I think, for reading the Bible in new ways that I had never even imagined or was told were not possible. Well, it really kind of backfires, don't you think? Because we're taught in these strict evangelical faith circles that there is one right way. And so when somebody brings up like anything outside of that, that right. kind of makes sense to us, it all crumbles. So like for so many of us, deconstruction initially looks like a total shit show because everything has just crumbled around us all at once, right? And there's a lot of pain that comes with that, as opposed to this alternative that I think we all are kind of like wanting to exist or hoping for in the future, right? Where we're we're constantly having these conversations and people are constantly able to disagree about things that they see or there's different interpretations. And so our kids in maybe the future can grow up in that style of, Christianity, if we want to call it that, right? Where they're able to have questions and even question things that leaders are telling them. There's sort of freedom in that. Absolutely. It's one of the many ironies of of fundamentalism. I mean, I think, you know, it goes back to Luther, who I enjoy bashing unapologetically. He was a constipated anti-Semitic person who did more damage to the church than I think most of us give him credit for. And one of those, along with Solofide, which I I'm not a fan of, a sola scriptura, which was a joke the minute that it was put to paper. And if you don't believe me, go look at the history of the Reformation. The minute that he wrote sola scriptura and everyone around him said, yes, sola scriptura, they all went their different ways because they all had their own version of sola scriptura right? Because we all do. I mean, the Bible itself is an act of interpretation. I mean, Mm. it was an act when it was being written because the gospel writers, for example, were interpreting their memories and the stories that they had heard about Jesus. It's an act of interpretation, you know, to go from Hebrew and Greek into English or to some other language. And so it's like, we're constantly interpreting. And then you get, you have these folks that that set up that house of cards, right? And say, well, if, if the Bible isn't perfect, then how do I know blah, 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 blah? You know, how can I trust it? How can I? And this is Ken Ham and, and these sorts of folks who I have to thank for this book because he wrote an article about me about 12 years ago when I wrote a blog post called The Bible Isn't Perfect and It Says So Itself that canceled my first book deal. And, and now we've come full circle. So thank you, Ken. But Ken preaches this sort of fundamentalist mentality, but so do a lot of just evangelicals who wouldn't consider themselves fundamentalists. But it's this baseline idea that if you take this card away, then it all crumbles. And it's true, it does. But like, maybe the problem was with the setup in the first place, because Jesus does offer us an option, an alternative to biblical literalism and and fundamentalism, because 
the, the teachers and religious leaders of this day came to him with this, basically the same question, because they wanted to understand how to build their house of cards on the commandments and on the law. And they said, which one is the greatest? And he said, there are two great commandments, love the Lord your God, your neighbor and yourself. And we all know those, but that second part of the passage, I think is really overlooked and important for biblical interpretation, because he says, all the law and the prophets hang on these two commands. And so for Jesus, all the law and the prophets was his version of the Bible. The Bible did not exist you know, when Jesus was alive, even what we call the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible was still kind of in flux. And so what Jesus is saying is all of scripture has to be interpreted first and foremost by this command to love. And so this is something that Augustine will pick up on 400 years later when he says, and this is me paraphrasing, but he said, no matter how great your exegesis is, no matter how great your linguistic skills, even if you're not like Zach and you, you did better than a D in Greek, which is true and embarrassing, but even if you have really great, you know, biblical language skills or, or and you have all the proof text, you know, and all those cards that you need, if your interpretation does not lead you to love your neighbor, then you're wrong, period. And it's unequivocal and it's not liberalism. It's not relativism. I mean, this is mm-hmm. Augustine, one of the greatest early church fathers, but more than that, it's Jesus. I mean, that's, he's just stealing from Jesus and who said, if if any of these commands don't lead you to love, then you're missing the whole point. This is how he can go up and say, you have heard it said, but I say, or he can say the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath and take all of these revolutionary things, yeah. but remain faithful because for Jesus, for the Sabbath, yeah. it's all about this call to love because who we worship is a triune God. God's most fundamental being is loving communion. And if we understand that, if that is our foundation, then it doesn't really matter where all our different, I mean, our interpretations matter, but like it, we have a lot more space for disagreement if we can begin on that agreed foundation of love, but also love as a finish line. So if they become the brackets, if we start with this idea that we have to be driven by love and our goal is to make sure that we're still loving, then everything else in between, there's all sorts of space for disagreements and, and diversity as long as our beginning and end point is the same. And, and I think that's what Jesus was trying to get to. That's what I'm shamelessly plagiarizing. <laughs> well, um, I was just even thinking about first Corinthians 13. That's not yeah, a principle, oh, yeah. right? Like mm-hmm. if you don't, yes. you could have all of this knowledge and all of this stuff and you don't have love, you're nothing. Right. I mean, even Paul, who some of us have little issues with at times, yeah, he he reiterated that. He just reiterated that idea, which is so interesting. And I, I, I get amazed a little bit that like when I am talking to people and I'm say things like, well, love is the most important. They're like, what about God's justice? It's just amazing how right. the desire to like for punitive retributive justice and setting everyone straight. I mean, only talking about myself in the past, a past version of me, I didn't really have love as my forefront. I didn't. I can picture myself fighting that. And it's such a bizarre thing now to be on the other side and say, well, why wouldn't it be the beginning and the end? Like, how can you not see? And then I'm sort of preaching again to my former self and then to the people around me. I'm like, ah, why are we fighting about this? Oh, yeah. I mean, it should be a no-brainer. <laughs> but it's like when you believe that love is punitive, right? Like when you believe oh, that yeah. God is love and you believe that God is all of these things, right? Then you believe that those things are loving. Like that's yes. where it gets like right. all mixed up. Can I just jump in really quick, Zach? Because you're using the term exegesis a few times. I'm not sure all of our listeners know what that means. So when you're saying that you're talking about just the like the critical interpretation of the Bible, right? That's... Right. What you're referring to. It's yeah. just, you know, fancy academic language for Bible yep. study, you yeah. know, so yeah, yeah. as opposed <laughs> to just, you know, sitting there with a devotional book, which is fine. Right. Exegesis is, you know, going deeper into things like rhetorical criticism or historical criticism or yeah. Yeah. grammatical criticism. It's like all the, the nitty gritty stuff that I hated, to be honest, as, as a freshman. And I, I still hate a lot of it, but it's so crucially important because the Bible was not written in English. And it was not written to you and me. You know, it was written to people 2,000 years ago in a time that was radically different, where they had several words for love, mm-hmm. which is why I love to be a dad pun. That passage from 1 Corinthians 13, which we use at weddings bizarrely, but he is not talking about <laughs> Eros there. Right. Um, he's talking about 
and I'm probably going to be wrong because, and this is embarrassing because I wrote about this in my first book, but I'm pretty sure he's talking about the Philadelphia kind of love, you know, the city of brotherly love, because Paul was thoroughly apocalyptic. Paul, when he says things like, you know, don't go get married, it's not because Paul doesn't like marriage. It's because Paul thinks Jesus is coming back next week. And if Jesus is coming back next week, why would you plan a wedding? You know, why would you go pick out a cake and, and do all those sorts of things? And if we understand First Corinthians 13 and that sort of context, then it comes back to this whole beginning and end, this finish line and foundation of love that Paul is again driving us to that like all these little details about circumcision and who's not circumcised, it all comes back to this call to love so that like it doesn't really matter the details of, of how you get there. It's the getting there. Right. That's why Jesus is constantly opening tables and sitting with people that he has no business eating dinner with because he's constantly finding new ways to love. Love. Mm, and that's, I, so that's why I find Jesus still interesting. Yeah, that's so good. We'll get right back to today's podcast episode, but we wanted to give a shout out to a few of our Patreon supporters, Joy Fell, Jason Smith, and Jennifer Keith. Thank you so much for your support. For just $3 a month, you can be a part of our private Facebook group and help us keep the lights on at Deconstructing Mamas. And now back to the episode. Can we go back to the quote from the beginning? Can I read it? I'm going to read it again. And then I'm going to ask you a question. Admitting we could be wrong about the things we are most convinced of that are so fundamental to who we are is painful and becoming someone new is scary. So what happened in your own life? If you can give us a little personal story to help you to get to this place of, I might be wrong. Mm -hmm. I mean, the encounter with my professor that I mentioned before was definitely pivotal, but I would say it was a, a beginning point because it wasn't like I woke up the next morning and was like, oh, enlightenment, you know, like it wasn't like a, a scales falling from my eyes because I definitely fought it hard and, you know, kept those scales. It's a lot of little things. You know, I, I love a lot of things about my tradition and I love going to camp meetings, but I think the problem with like revivalism in general, and again, evangelicalism specifically as well, is we really love these instantaneous moment things. You know, we want to be able to have that Damascus Road moment and say, oh, I went down to an altar, I'm saved now, and everything is is great. And that's not life, you know, and, and it wasn't mine. I mean, mine was a professor unintentionally embarrassing, a wildly arrogant student, but it was also getting to know my wife, who was a liberal Yankee, and, and I didn't think that there were Christians north of the Mason-Dixon line. It was getting to know my <laughs> father-in-law, who's literally a Benedictine monk um, in Massachusetts. And well, I grew up thinking Catholics were all going to hell because they worship Mary. And this doesn't sound related, but in my mind, it works. One of my favorite Mark Twain quotes is, travel is fatal to prejudice. And yes. I, I think that for me, and I'm biased because I love traveling in general, but like getting out of my, the cliche bubble and traveling new roads and meeting strangers and friends and people that I was told to avoid because they were sinners or because they would make me unclean or because they would lead me astray because they were false teachers. The more I traveled outside of my tent or whatever metaphor you want, the more I was confronted with the reality that I was wrong about a lot of things that I thought I, I knew mm -hmm. because faith is not science. It's not math. It's not even like history. I mean, even though history is a big part of faith, I mean, faith is just inherently subjective. I, I was getting an argument with a, a friend the other day who's come out of fundamentalism and, and is now an atheist. And I was trying to tell him, I was like, you know, it, Faith or no faith is just inherently a proposition because you can't prove them. You know, they don't abide by the rules of logic, you know, or science or any of these things. And so if that's true, then like, how can I be so confident in the things? Now, this doesn't mean that I'm not like, I, I still believe very passionately that loving your neighbor is a really important thing. I still feel very passionately that Jesus is, is a good model and that I'm weird and think that Jesus lived, died, and rose again. You know, I, I believe these things, but I also believe that they're just that, they're, they're beliefs. Mm -hmm. And I think that I can only truly answer that call to love my neighbor if I hold those things as beliefs and not facts. Mm -hmm. Because if I hold them as beliefs, then I leave not just space for doubt, but space for the Holy Spirit to continue to open my eyes to new possibilities to new understandings, to new friendships, mm -hmm. to new relationships. And then I can begin to do really crazy things that I never thought of, like 
accepting my gay neighbors mm -hmm. as Christians, even though I thought that was totally impossible mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because I never actually sat down and broke bread with them. Yeah. And I think when we sit around a table and we travel across the street or around the world and get to new, mm -hmm. meet new people and we do that in a truly humble way, I think that those walls, that house of cards that I think that we often think is a house built with bricks starts to come tumbling down whether we, we want it to or not. Right. That's the goal, I think. Yeah. I love that idea, like you said, about travel. And for me, I think I always say the word proximate. Just get proximate to people, hear their stories. Like it's very hard to hate someone or think someone's wrong who's telling you they love Jesus, yet they believe something completely different. And then you're watching them love their neighbor. And as you get to know people who are so different from you, it's like, oh my gosh, did you know they actually love Jesus or they actually right. are closer to God and they don't even believe in Jesus. Like they're a better Christian than all the Christians. Yes. <laughs> I watched this, this uh, travel shows and it was uh, a Sikh temple. And I want to uh, say, yeah, it's beautiful. It's like completely covered in gold. And every day they welcome everyone, travelers, people who are Sikh, mm -hmm. to come and share a meal mm -hmm. around a common table. And everyone is required to contribute. You know, people that might be washing dishes, it might be stirring the rice, it may be serving the food. As a Christian, I would say that's the kingdom of God on earth mm -hmm. as is heaven. Mm -hmm. And this is my Wesleyanism breaking through with my ideas of prevenient grace and the idea that God is at work in ways and in places and in people that I can't even imagine. If that's true, then I mean, my whole worldview has to be turned upside down because Jesus was clear about eternity in one place in Matthew 25. He does say this is how judgment's day is going to go. And it's it's not going to be, did you believe in the whole, you know, in the Virgin Mary? Did you affirm the resurrection? Which atonement theory did you believe? It's, I was hungry. Did you feed me? I was thirsty. Did you give me something to drink? But most radically of all, there is never once a question of, did you confess me as Lord and Savior? And in fact, a lot of the people that do confess him as Lord and Savior are left standing. But Lord, Lord, when did I see you? Lord, I prophesied your name. That to me has been one of the most challenging things in my faith and has forced me into a place of humility that like, I can believe all the things and, and have all the great theology. But if I don't have love, I'm a resounding gong and a clean symbol. Yeah. 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 So it's so true. Like, I mean, what you said, Zach, when we're holding on to our beliefs so tightly, like we're missing all of that. Yeah. Like I think about everything that I missed when I was holding my belief so tightly. And I was so sure that the only way to see Jesus in the flesh was in these very specific ways. I was missing everything that was happening mm -hmm. out here mm -hmm. completely. Mm -hmm. Same. Now on the other side, I'm just like, oh my gosh. Like, you're like, how was I so blind, right? You can't even imagine thinking like that once you're on the other side, but right, it's everywhere. I think for me, like so one of the biggest things for me of coming to the other side is coming from my dispensationalist end times obsession and, you know, looking for the Antichrist. And it never occurred to me that maybe the Antichrist was looking at me in the mirror. And I, and I say that because, like, I mean, think about what we're doing with all of this, with, with our dogma and our rules. I mean, we're trying to control everything. I mean, we're trying to control God. We are trying to put ourselves in the place of God. And one of the oldest hymns that at least we believe that we have in the church is Philippians 2. And Jesus, even though in the form of God, did not consider equality with God to be something. And Paul's language here is to be snatched at. And he's evoking the image of Adam and Eve snatching at that equality with God. And so if there's anything that is definitionally anti-Christ. It's trying to snatch divine control and trying to possess others and to control others and to exclude others as if we are the, the judge, jury, and executioner mm -hmm. in a lot of situations. And so honestly, I mean, that's the biggest gut, gut punch for me personally, mm -hmm. is that I spent all these years looking for the Antichrist and all I had to do was look in the mirror. Mm -hmm. Has this idea of I might be wrong taking that kind of humble stance and broader view, has this changed the way maybe that you parent your kids versus the way maybe you were raised? Or how does this play out? Maybe why does it play out? It's hard. I wish I had good answers for that. This is something that, that my wife and I are struggling with, to be honest. One of my favorite memories from growing up is church camp. Like I just, I love church camp. You know, as a kid, I loved going, you know, I loved playing in the Creek. I loved going to the service. I love the snack and just everything with it. And so we sent our kids a couple years ago this year, my youngest daughter 
when my oldest daughter has separation anxiety and we didn't want to push it. And she had a lot of fun and we were glad for that. But her takeaway, she wouldn't obviously phrase it that way because she was seven. But like the one thing that has stuck with her is that she needs to be worried because Satan is out to get her. I am not going to push that trauma on my child. And yet I want her to meet that same Jesus that I met at church camp. So how, how to go about finding that balance is hard. Mm -hmm. And I am deeply skeptical of anyone who has right answers for that. I think for me, I had a Freudian slip in therapy the other day and talked about putting, I was trying to talk about putting up guardrails in life because my denomination has just become a shit show and it's not something that I can be a part of anymore. And and that is very heartbreaking and enraging for a lot of, a lot of different reasons, but you know, kind of along the lines of finding Jesus in places and in people in ways that I didn't expect. I've started to put up God rails. I'm a dad. I like dad puns. I'm going with this one, but like, it's weird protecting your children from the church. Mm-hmm. Like that is not something I ever thought I would have to do. Absolutely. And now that I do it, I mean, just thinking about it, it makes me an emotional basket case, but like, I think that, that that's okay because like I want them if I can raise kids they'll they know if I can teach my kids how to love their neighbor relentlessly and recklessly and unapologetically I'm I'm not worried about if they ever step foot inside yeah. of a church yeah. and I'm not worried about what they mean if there's a judgment day because the Jesus that I know and the Jesus that I read about in the Bible, it seems pretty clear that if you live a life devoted to loving your neighbor, then you don't have anything to worry about. And so for me and my wife, as as we've just now begun starting to navigate this space, because you know, COVID was good in that it gave us an excuse to kind of step away a little bit. I and mean, we we did virtual stuff for years and God, I wish churches had embraced that opportunity to hit reset in dramatic ways and everybody just went back to doing the same thing. But my wife's a physician, so our life is kind of crazy anyway. And we've come to just covet family time, you know, and I realize we shouldn't covet, but I'm okay with this one. I wrote a book saying that it's okay to disagree with the Bible, so I'm already going to hell. <laughs> but family time is just so important. And so, like, you know, it began with like, you know, oh, we found ways we can watch church virtually because we love our pastors, they're friends. I love hearing our pastor preach. He's great. But now like Sundays really have become a time of rest because like, even when she's not working, my wife has to do notes and catch up on things. And like last Sunday, we went for breakfast and took a walk down the neighborhood. And all I could think of was the Sabbath is made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And so if I still have that arrogant evangelical bone in me, it's that I think that as a God-breathed person, that I can teach my kids how to love their neighbor. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And at this point in life, that looks different than it did for me growing up. Mm-hmm. That sucks, but it's also exciting because it opens up new possibilities. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I don't have any answers for how in the hell you go about fixing yeah. this just completely screwed up thing, the mess that we've made of church and children and being scared of the rapture and the devil around every corner. But if I can teach my kids how to love their neighbor, then I think that's okay. Yeah. Yeah. I so appreciate your vulnerability with that, Zach, because it is so hard being a parent coming from religious trauma and then trying to parent differently without indoctrinating them like this totally other direction, right? Where right. they are then now just like afraid of all, you know, like it's just, it's so hard to to figure out the balance. Yeah. And I think that so much of what I hear you saying and so much of what I've heard other guests of ours saying is that like, we actually sort of know how to do it. Yeah. And the answer is like, just less, right? <laughs> like, just yes. practice with the family and right. walks and it's unique to each family, right? Like Absolutely. all of our journeys are unique. So, I mean, I talk about this a lot on the podcast that I don't read, my kids don't really know Bible stories. Yeah. Like, I don't read the Bible to them. Right. Yeah. And some people have chosen differently right. who are in similar mindsets as me. They just are going that direction. I'm not because that's where I am in my journey. Right. Yeah. But believing that we are doing what's right for our kids because we have this inner knowing yes. 
right? And it might be different from someone else's inner knowing. Hmm. Right. But it can still be good and the air quotes right way for us to do it. Right. And I think to having that vulnerability to say, we have no idea we're going with what feels good for us. (laughs) Like he's enough is more than enough. Right. And you'll have people attack you for that line of what feels good for us. However, if we are God breathed, Mm -hmm. if I owe my entire existence to the breath of God, and if I am open to the leading of God, and I am trying to follow this God who said the greatest commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself, yep. then what feels good isn't just my internal feelings. It may just be the Holy Spirit. Yes. It may yes. be the breath of God breathing out of me in the same way that we're supposed to be. That's what I, I think it goes back to again that, like, what really scares us all in this conversation, but particularly the church as an institution, is this issue of control, right? Because like we, we want to be able to control our lives. We want to be able to control our kids' lives. We want to be able to control the church's lives. And so we have all this programming and all these boards and all these infrastructures and things to do that. And like, if you take that stuff away, then where are people going to get jobs and insurance? And like, there are very real concerns, but like so much of it is just crap, like the thing I wish that we had learned from COVID is that you don't need all this programming. Yeah. Like just don't. And like you, we're just constantly, I see this from children's pastors and youth pastors and senior pastors constantly is like you put all these time, this time and effort and these resources into these programs and you get upset because people can't go because good Lord, we all have, I mean, like I, like we started the show. Like you said at the beginning, <laughs> right? And so, like, I need a Sabbath, yes. and I don't need a Sabbath that's filled up with more pseudo school activities, yes. right? Yeah. And then you, we just get upset because people don't show up, and then we just do it all again. And yet, COVID showed us that, like, we can take a break from all this and still be the people of God, right? But we didn't learn that lesson. <laughs> so, because the idea of of giving, actually letting, like the Holy Spirit be the Holy Spirit and to be free and to lead us into places is scary, right? I mean, it's scary like Peter having a vision of a sheet coming down from heaven and seeing these animals that he's not supposed to eat and then hearing this voice of God saying, actually, no, you should go do that. I mean, this is scary shit, but it's the Bible. It's the story of the people of God. And if we really want to be biblically faithful, then we have to take that step of faith and allow the spirit, the freedom that the spirit needs to open our eyes and our minds to see the world in ways that, that we can't imagine if we're only looking at God like this, the lens of church and Bible. I have found so much in just doing life with people, Yeah, just doing life. And I feel like church is everywhere and God's everywhere. And I have a friend who has two little girls and they just came to stay with some vacation. And the little girl said to me, her six-year-old was like, you know God really well, right, Esther? Can you answer this question? And I was like, why does she think I know God really well? All I did was like do a handstand with her and get on a water slide with her. And then she's hearing just my conversations with her mom about her. And I thought, well, isn't that why is that not okay? Like, that's really where the rubber meets the road. She wanted to know about God just because I love her. Right. And just because we did headstands together and because like, and she heard me talking about God in another conversation. And it was such so much more organic than when I stood up in Sunday school and I did this for 25 years and sang a song and had a little message and made sure everybody had their ducks and memorized their verses and did all those things. And I, I actually don't miss all that programming oh. because I'm actually sharing communion yeah. and community right. with this little six-year-old. Yeah. Yeah. I want my kids to love God because they see the love of God in me, not because they're scared of going to hell. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. You know? Yeah. And I love and am grateful for my tradition and my church, but like, I do not want my kids to grow up into teenagers like me who are scared shitless that they're going to be raptured or that they're going to be left behind, mm-hmm. that they're going to go to hell, that all their neighbors who aren't straight, white, conservative, cisgendered men are the devil, when in fact, they're more much more likely to be sexually assaulted by the people who are telling them that all those people are going to hell. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so it's like, it it's hard and it's confusing and it's scary. But like you said, like it's, we pray every night. 
we, we have our own version of the Lord's Prayer where we say the same sort of things and pray for the same sort of things. And our kids, if we don't, if I get lazy and just don't want to do it, like my kids were camping out on the couch this weekend and I thought I could go to bed and like, daddy, we need to pray, you know, and they want to pray and it opens up conversations mm-hmm. organically or God breathed um, <laughs> parts of ways. God. You know, I mean, they are talking about like the gender of God. Those are not conversations that I had when I was seven or yeah. nine. I didn't yeah. think you could have them. Yeah. It's so yeah. my five-year-old and I are having have conversations often about the gender of God. Yeah. It's actually like her main question. <laughs> actually, it's not even a question. She has since she was a young, young child, just has referred to God as she. Like that's just right. how she refers to God. Right now that she's getting older, she's like, How do we know? Blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, Well, we don't. God's on binary, blah, blah, blah. So we're now we're having these like right now we're having these bigger conversations because she's asking right. these bigger questions but i think you're right zach there was no space for that yeah. so even offering a safe space for our kids to ask questions and i think what i'm learning too is that it's not just about how we relate to our kids on like a faith level it's literally the space that we create for them to just live live like, are we creating a space for them to ask questions about anything yeah. right are we creating a space where they they know that we are safe. Are they creating a space where they know that they are loved and that they are worthy? Like, and those are sort of, in my mind, those are the building blocks. They can take those wherever they go, regardless of what faith tradition they end up in. I'm helping to kind of set the stage for that, which is important. And I think when we, when we're so worried about hell and keeping our kids from hell, Esther and I talk about this all the time, right? When that's our main focus, we're missing like these developmental milestones that help our kids become like whole and healed humans, you know? And so not teenagers scared of the rapture. Yes. Yeah. And so when I get overwhelmed, I guess when I get overwhelmed about the faith component, because I am very overwhelmed about that. I have a three-year-old and a five-year-old and we don't know what we're doing with that. When I get overwhelmed by that, I just remind myself that these tiny little things make a difference. You know, you don't have to have all the answers. You don't even have to go the right direction. You could never utter God in a sentence to your kids, right? But you can still raise them in a way where they know that they are fully loved, right? right? And fully worthy and deserving of life, basically, which are messages that I think I just got the opposite of. Oh, yeah. And, you know, it, it sounds trite, but like some of the best theological conversations I have are with my children because they feel free to ask questions about God that even now I still don't always feel free to ask. Yeah. And it challenges me to to rethink things. And like I said, if I can teach them to to love their neighbor and to to seek truth wherever it may be found, like and find that in community some way. Like I, I feel like that's the sort of church that I valued and was beneficial to me. And in broader practical terms, if the faith is the most important thing to us and they feel totally comfortable asking anything about that, well, then that makes them more comfortable to ask other questions as they grow up yeah. to young women and to teenagers and to adults. Mm-hmm. And if I can, and this is not knock my buckets, like my parents or my mom specifically, who raised me, she was great. But like, you know, if my kids feel free to ask me anything, not just about God, but just about life. That's awesome. And I feel like maybe they didn't go to VBS this year or they didn't make it to Sunday school or whatever, but man, if they feel free to like be open and honest with me as a parent, I I don't feel bad about that. Yeah, that's good. I just keep thinking about the humble stance. And when we read your quote at the beginning, that humble stance of like, I could be wrong with our kids. That's where we're all, we're all saying that the field is level. You've leveled the playing field, no matter if you're five, 25, 85. Right. We're all on this journey together and we're just trying to figure it out as we go. Oh, yeah. And I don't think there's anything more powerful. I know for me, when I feel like other people kind of consider me at their level and they are willing to be both a teacher and a learner, and it stems from exactly what you said in your quote, I could be wrong. You know, like, wow. And if we have that posture all the time with our kids, I don't know how we could go wrong, to be honest. Yeah, that is a game changer. That is a major, major game changer. And I just sense that in your spirit. And I, I think that's probably why you're where you are now as like, yeah. And, and I really appreciated just even your vulnerability and to call out that this is also very hard and there is a lot of grief yeah yeah a lot of grief around that i don't know 
Yeah. I mean, to give up our own certainty and all the ways that that held us, like you said, that's so painful, it is. but it's so beautiful at the same time. So I, oh, I love it. What my like go-to talk that I give on my book tours revolves around Ezekiel and the Valley of Dry Bones. And you know, asking the question, can these bones live again? You know, and I'm talking about in the context of the church and the Bible, obviously. But like to even get to that point, you have to acknowledge like you have to go through the valley of death. And that's not easy. I mean, death is painful and death hurts. And it doesn't make it any easier when the people in your life, especially church, that should know better and do mean well, I think, constantly gaslight you about causing division and idolizing unity. And I just want to look at him like Jesus was, if nothing else, a divider, not a uniter. I came to bring sword, not peace. And that's not because Jesus was just being, he wasn't just trying to be a pain in the ass to be a pain in the ass. Like Jesus took sides. Jesus was not in the middle. If I could add anything to the Bible, you know, if we opened up the canon, it would be Dr. King's letter from a Birmingham jail where he talks about the greatest struggle or that he faces is the white moderate who's more interested in the absence of tension than the presence of justice, justice. you know? And I think that kind of intersects perfectly with this control and this knowledge. I mean, we want, we want everyone to hold hands and sing Kumbaya because we have this like romantic version of church in our head that, that seems nice, mm-hmm. but in reality, it's just silencing the oppressed and silencing the cries of the marginalized. Mm-hmm. And to be able to, extricate yourself from that is so hard mm-hmm. and so painful because it means breaking relationships with people that you love. Right. Right. And that sucks. And, I, and it doesn't stop because I still find myself doing that today. And I mean, half of my time in therapy is just learning how to put boundaries up in my own life of like, I don't have to keep going. Like, again, is a biblical phrase. Like it's okay to shake the dust off your sandals and, and walk away. Yeah. And that's a lot easier said than done. Yeah. Yeah. So good. Well, where in the world can people find you with Zach with two A's? <laughs> yes. Zach with two A's. Just to make things more confusing, my personal website is Zach Hunt with just one A. So there's that kind of jumping off point, but I've got a Facebook page. I'm pretty active there on Twitter. I'm not going to call it X because it's stupid. <laughs> and I hate that website, but I'm a news junkie. And so I'm still there. Instagram threads those are the the main websites and it's the same handle at z-a-a-c-k-h-u-n-t because that jerk personal trainer stole it 20 years ago and and i still i'm not better i don't hold a grudge and you love him like you love yourself oh yeah no it's all about loving your neighbor and this is just you know this is my journey that i'm working on (laughs) well zach thank you so much this has been really great and so insightful i really appreciate your time with us thank you for having me I, i really enjoyed it Well, that's it for this episode of the Deconstructing Mamas podcast. We love that you tuned in and hope that this gave you a little bit of grace and space for your soul to breathe. Don't forget to catch up on any of our episodes that you missed. And remember to follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Deconstructing Mamas. That's where you'll find all the information that you need about the podcast, as well as on our website, deconstructingmamas.com. You can also sign up for our weekly newsletter when you get there. If you'd like to support the podcast, join our Patreon network for just $3 a month and have access to our private community with all kinds of extras. Leave us a review wherever you listen to podcasts or just tell others about the show. Thanks for listening and come back again for our next episode. We can't wait to be on the other side of your headphones.